0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the
1: Lone Star Policy Institute. If you like today's show, please subscribe to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play.
0: We're going to be talking about speech issues today with Nikki Neely of Speech First. So welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me on.
0: And I want to address uh, one issue right up front, which is some of our listeners know me personally, uh, or or maybe wondering... My wife is named Nikki Neely, but that's not you.
2: <laughs> no, that is not me. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And
2: we, we both lived in Austin at the same time too, and so it, was, it definitely was a matter of do I need to destroy other Nicole Neely? But I didn't. We decided to, said to I, keep, keep us both around.
0: Yeah, I'm. I, yeah, I'm glad you came to that decision. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we didn't run you out of town or anything. I, I, I hope so. Right. Right. Okay, so yeah, actually, I, I believe that you left Austin to go to the D.C. area, to the Swamp, to work for a decidedly non-Swampy organization, which is Speech First. So why don't you tell us, what is Speech First?
2: Yeah, Speech First is a pretty new campus free speech organization. We were just launched last February, and we were created to complement some of the efforts that a lot of our friends in the free speech space, like FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, and Alliance Defending Freedom have been doing. Um, We are structured a little bit differently than they are in that Speech First is a membership association. A membership is open not only to students, but also to concerned citizens. So parents, grandparents, um, alumni, just angry Americans in general. Um, because it struck me that I, I right now, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and I'm, I'm really frustrated with what's going on on campus today. But um, I am not a big enough donor to any of my alma maters that if I were to call them up and say, hey, I'm really unhappy with how you're, you've are you been adjudicating some of these issues recently, they would tell me, thank you so much, Mrs. Neely, keep your $50, have a nice life. Um, but I think once you start to get groups of people together, it's one thing if you're one person who's mad, but if you're 10 people, if you're 50 people, if you're 100 people, if you're 10000 People suddenly, universities have to take notice of that, and so there's I think there's strength in numbers. And also, as a membership association, our cases are filed on behalf of our student members, which means that it's speech first versus a school instead of being Nikki versus the University of Illinois. Because you know, to bring a lawsuit against your school, if even if you feel that your rights are being violated, is really it's definitely a daunting prospect. You know, that your name is out there, everybody's going to ostracize you, you might have your grades judged a little bit more harshly. Will you get access to a scholarship or a study abroad program that you want to get into, you're a troublemaker. And so by keeping students' names out of it, we think that it's actually it's, it's pretty compelling because what we are primarily interested in, although I think that issues like free speech zones and speaker security fees are bad, um, in my mind... The biggest threat to free speech on campus today is chilling, that students are self-censoring themselves. They are put in a position where often they don't know what they can be in trouble for because there are policies on the books that are written and worded so vaguely that it's, it's hard to tell. And they're also put in a position where they can get in trouble at any time, anywhere, because of policies like bias response teams where students can report their fellow classmates. And so, frankly, out of an abundance of caution, Students just refrain from speaking altogether. They avoid discussing topics that might be controversial because they fear that there might be punishment or retribution for that. And so in my mind, that chilling, that self-censorship of topics that, I mean, particularly on public university campuses it may be unpopular, but it is still constitutionally protected. That chilling, that self-censorship, I think is the greatest threat to free speech on college campuses today.
0: What are some examples of that? Because I, I know some people kind of look dismissively at the idea that there is some sort of big free speech problem on campus. I, I saw the other day, the Niskanen Center had a report out that I, I think the uh, summary of it was uh, there, there never was a free speech crisis on campus and it ended last year. So <laughs> what reason do we have to think that there's actually a serious problem here as opposed to just a few crazy people, which what would college be like without a few crazy people?
2: Sure. So um, the the report that you're talking about from the Niskanen Center, Jeffrey Sachs looks at statistics that Fire has compiled of shout downs and disinvitations. And yes, certainly those have gone down over the past couple of years. A lot of that was frankly in the wake of the 2016 election. And then there was Milo Yiannopoulos who was doing his tour. There was Richard Spencer who was doing his tour. So it was kind of a time period where there were a lot of provocateurs that were intentionally trying to stir the pot on campuses. A lot of those people have frankly just gone off tour. But again, I, th- I think chilling is the kind of thing where it's really difficult to statistically capture um, how many times Times a day do you self-censor? Even, I mean, I was looking at what we did last year. I, I talked to hundreds of students last year at conferences, in person, on the phone, emailing, asking them what it's like on their campuses on a regular basis. FIRE evaluates several hundred schools around the country looking at the policies that they have in the books and they give them a rating, red, yellow, green, based on how good they are, how speech protective they are. And I have talked to schools on campuses that have bad policies in the books And those policies aren't necessarily enforced in a way that students feel oppressed. And then on some schools that policies actually aren't terrible, many students still feel bad because policies are enforced very unevenly, maybe very heavy handed on one end of the political spectrum. But I asked students off the bat, do you ever self-censor? And a lot of them say, oh, no, I don't. And then I, I dig down a little bit and say, well, would you talk about this? Would you criticize something like the Me Too movement or a Black Lives Matter protest. Oh, I would never say that. Okay, well, then you do self-censor. And so you have to kind of unpack what that self-censorship is. I Just looking at a couple very top-line polls that have been done over the past couple years, the Knight Foundation and the Gallup Foundation do a poll every year asking students if they self-censor or if they prevent themselves from speaking on campus. And between 2016 and 2017, um, that number jumped actually from 54% of students to 61% of students. And demographically, One of the biggest jumps in that breakout was actually among self-professed Democrats, which I found interesting. This polling has been echoed in polls done by FIRE, which has found that I think 54% of students have self-censored on a regular basis. And most recently, actually, at the University of Texas, the um, Daily Pulse conducted a poll that was reported about in October that said 80% of students have stopped themselves from saying an idea or an opinion in class because they fear that it would offend others. So in my mind, those are pretty staggering numbers. And it is difficult to statistically capture, but I. I do think that there are students that just frankly don't want to have discussions on campus because they fear fallout or punishment.
1: I self censor all the time. I mean, there's, I can't tell you how many times I draft up a, a tweet that I think is hilarious and then I think about maybe I shouldn't do that. So, I mean, that's a form of self censorship. So, why is that um, different yeah, than and what's you know happening what? like on we're college all
2: campuses? small government, you know, libertarians, conservatives. In my mind, there's a big difference between you doing that because you fear ostracism, social pressure, losing friends over it and then the idea that you will face punishment that you know if you are at a public university and you are dragged into a disciplinary proceeding because you have said something that somebody has deemed rude or offensive and that's grounds to be punished expelled suspended that's something very different and frankly when it's it's the force of the state behind it that's where i think there's a problem i mean if there is social pressure to not talk about certain issues that stinks but That's not grounds for legal action, but it is when it uh, when the school is is putting their might behind it, where I think there's something to be concerned about.
0: It does seem like there has been perhaps a a sea change or a change in the way that people think about speech lately, uh, a lot more. Concern about you know what would offend people, descriptions of you know certain opinions as being inherently hateful or even violent. What do you think is explaining that? Because throughout most of my life, freedom of speech, if anything, yeah, it seemed to be kind of associated more with with the left, college campuses, Berkeley. And when I was in school, I was not a. I, I mean, I was a conservative, but looking back, I never felt like I had to self-censor myself. In fact, sometimes I look back and think, "Gosh, <laughs> you know." <laughs> I just, you know, I just said whatever I thought and it didn't really occur to me that uh, I might get in trouble or that, you know, someone might bring in the uh, behavioral whatever team. So, you know, what do you think is driving this?
2: Honestly, I think there's sort of a perfect storm of things, which is... One reason why there's there's no clean way to clean this up or to fix it is because there's just a lot of different factors going on. I mean, I think this has been building on some level for 20, 30, 40 years because of factors like political correctness. I mean, the first major challenge to speech codes that we saw actually was in um, the late 80s. It was Doe v. Michigan. And so these these pushes to have political correctness laws on the books, regulations on the books. I think helicopter parenting is another factor. It's, it's kind of created this culture of safetyism where we want to protect our kids from harm, from hurt feelings. So that's that's another aspect of it, um, where, you're, where you're kind of trying to bubble wrap your children. You're trying to keep students from, from facing harm. I think there is the idea that speech is harm is something that has started to, to come up again, where your words hurt my feelings, that causes me emotional distress, mental distress. Is that the same as me smacking you in the face? I say no, but there are some people who would say yes. And I, I think another factor, frankly, is that universities have become pretty corporate, right? They look at students and parents as customers. And so when you have that mindset, and you have a student who comes to you and says, my feelings were hurt, I was offended, I'm freaking out. And then the parents come in and say, we're pulling our donations, we're considering suing you. The universities, I think it's it's easier for them to start to put into place departments and programs to address that rather than saying, you know what, college is where you're supposed to learn how to be a grown up. Colleges, you know, the real world is not a kind and gentle place. And so we are in some, in a lot of levels, delaying adulthood through these programs. And, and I think that's a problem. I think the programs in many cases have been put in place for that kind of safety and kindness intent, but I think it actually ends up hurting students much more often than not.
1: So I guess it was last month that Speech First filed a lawsuit against uh, University of Texas. Tell us a little bit about that case and what the, the background is on that matter.
2: Sure. So yeah, we, um, we filed a. Lawsuit against University of Texas on December 13th. We allege that the school has created an elaborate investigatory and disciplinary apparatus to suppress, punish, and deter speech that certain students may find offensive. There are four specific policies on the books that we take issue with. Their institutional rules on student services and activities, their acceptable use policy, which governs their internet, their residence hall manual, and their campus climate response team. And in our mind, all four of these policies are unconstitutional because of overbreath and vagueness. They are written very, very broadly. There are terms like um, for the the email system, uh, if you send uncivil or rude correspondence via email or over university internet systems, you know, through their Wi-Fi, you can be subject to punishment up to and including expulsion. That's a pretty broad term because what's rude to me might not be rude to you, might not be rude to Josiah. Um, And so when you put that burden on the listener. It's very hard for a speaker to know how their words might be taken, even if they weren't meant to be rude. Um, the institutional rules prohibit verbal harassment that is offensive, including insults, epithets, ridicule, and personal attacks. I mean, those are those are pretty general fir- uh, phrases. The residence hall manual defines harassment as including racism, sexism, heterosexism, cissexism, ageism, ableism, and any other force that seeks to suppress another individual or group of individuals. I had to look up a bunch of those words, but also a force that seeks to suppress an individual. I mean, I don't know what that means. I'm married to a constitutional lawyer. He doesn't know what that means. And so how are you expecting 18, 19, 20-year-olds to interpret this? And the campus climate response team is the fourth policy. That's a system where you can go if, if somebody says something to you, you overhear it or you have even third hand heard about it from somebody else. There is a portal on the University of Texas website where students can go on and they can report that speech that then gets sent to a campus climate team which is made up of university administrators that then investigate and call in the person who has been accused of making these um, biased statements. And that is something that is is really scary. Even if you are exonerated at the end of the day, you are subjecting students to punishment by process because that's a very scary thing to be an 18, 19, 20, 21 year old and be brought in to face a bunch of university administrators without the benefit of a lawyer present. So I think it's very hard to have all of these policies in the books, particularly written the way they are and have students know that they were able to exercise their their First Amendment rights. And so that's why we have decided to file a lawsuit.
0: You might think that sicking the behavioral response team on someone might be an example of suppressing an individual. Uh, I don't know.
2: (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, somebody asked me, why does it matter? I mean, right, these kids are at school for four years, and you sort of, you keep your head down, you keep your mouth shut, you suck it up, you get through. But frankly, what concerns me is that what happens on campus isn't staying on campus. If you think it is appropriate to shut down another individual because because you disagree with their with what their opinions are, that's a problem. I don't want to work with someone like that. I don't want to hire someone like that as an employer. And then, as I said before, if you are going into the real world, you have learned through your tenure at UT, rather than addressing a problem that you see, maybe if I, Josiah, if I see you saying something mean to Doug, rather than me walking up to you and addressing that proactively and saying, hey man, don't talk to him that way. I should go and tell the grownups. I should go and tell the, and I should go and, and tattletale. And, and that is very weird. I mean, that's, you know, I think that that is kind of ingraining big government habits into people. I don't want that to happen. I want people to be empowered to go and, and, and address problems head on so that when they are graduating, when they're 22, 23, 24, they are empowered individuals and not people whose knee-jerk reaction is to go and, and, and have somebody else clean up their mess.
1: Well, I, I, it seems like your main focus is on the, the litigation aspect of this is an unconstitutional speech code and such, but just kind of turn just for a second. You know, these, this is still an institution of education. Isn't there some role for educating the students to say this is uncivil behavior, this is rude behavior? Apart from the disciplinary action, is there is there some role for the educators and possibly the administration to use this as a teaching moment to educate the the students on what is proper and improper behavior?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we should definitely be encouraging civil Society, We should want students to go to school in a place where they feel that their opinions are valued. But we also want them to learn how to deal with those in real world situations. And so, you know, it's one thing to say we espouse, we hope, we aspire to have a civil um, community. It's another thing to do it at the point of a gun. It's a little bit hyperbolic, but um, to try and force people to be nice to each other or else you'll be punished, I think that that kind of backfires because if I'm scared that I'm going to be reported to campus police because I said something rude, I'm just not going to talk to you. At the risk of getting in trouble, I'm going to be... Flagrantly rude because I'm worried that you might that you might get mad at me, and I think that that undermines that sense of community that you're trying to develop.
1: So on the on, let's talk specifically about say the the Texas case. I know I know it's not the only piece of litigation you're in, but what would be the the ultimate aim uh, for the uh, for the litigation? What what are you hoping to see come out of it?
2: Well, right now we are in the uh, Western District of Texas, so we'll see how the courts um, determine how things will go forward. I'm not supposed to really talk about ongoing like. The specifics of the litigation, but our relief is set forth in our complaint and we're looking to sort it out with the courts in terms of permanent changes to make sure that students there on campus feel free to speak their minds on the issues of the day.
0: Just beyond the legal aspects, because I, I, I do think that you know there definitely there are issues of trying to use the force of the state or bureaucracy or whatever to try and shut down people that you might disagree with. But even just beyond that, even if we're just talking about the realm of of people are free to have their opinions about other views, there does seem to have been kind of maybe a a narrowing of the range of opinion that is considered acceptable or that people are willing to put up with for across the spectrum, perhaps. How do people on a personal level deal with that? And how do people cultivate a kind of tolerance for differing viewpoints that goes beyond you know, kind of constricted range of Bernie versus AOC?
2: <laughs> um, gosh, I would love to know. No, I think you're right that the the window of acceptable discourse is increasingly, it's, it's really, really narrow. And it seems to frankly be shifting farther and farther left day by day. I mean, that poll that showed that the biggest jump in students that self-censor on campus being Democrats, it just, it, it brought to mind, I was listening to a podcast with a progressive academic and he said, there are signaling words where you know if if i were to say something to you like stand up for your rights you would know as a as a woke individual that i wasn't super progressive because that is an ableist term i mean little kind of signaling things like that that you kind of hit paralysis if you don't know what the what the terms of the day are i wish i knew how to improve civic discourse. Um, I actually recently just deleted Twitter because I I think that that undermines it. And it's really, you know, the hot takes versus actually having proper dialogue. I'm not really sure. And the fact that I have small children, this scares me because this is the world that that they're entering where there's a lot of gotcha moments and not a lot of good faith anymore. And so I don't know. I wish you could tell me.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not surprised that this is more common among Democrats because I, I yeah, I see it play out on Twitter with, you know, left-wing folks that I follow where they say something that kind of deviates a little bit and then they just get kind of piled on. Jesse Singal or, or other folks like that. And, you know, if you're a conservative, you may be used to left wing people saying that they hate you and that you're awful, and you probably don't care as much what they say. Whereas if you're yourself left wing, probably stings a little bit more and, and you don't really have the same sort of support system if you want to just kind of disregard it. So
2: I think there's an element of kind of we we have lost a lot of the burkean and fabric of society, you know, people aren't bowling together, there aren't, um, you know, people are, are not going to churches. much. I was actually, I was down in Austin this past weekend. And I told somebody that I got tickets to go to Willie Nelson's Luck Reunion at his ranch during South by Southwest, which I think is really cool. And somebody said, well, he he held the biggest fundraiser for Beto. It was the biggest political rally in history. And I just thought, can't you not politicize this one thing? Like, can't I just enjoy a day of music? I'm going to Willie Nelson's ranch. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, right.
2: Um, So I think, you know, we have to kind of gut check ourselves. I think it is definitely, it's it's human nature to, to end, end up in sort of a tribal us versus them. And so I think we really, we do need to try and, and and check and aspire to the better angels of our nature and not just go to the lowest kind of us versus them mentality. Um, but it's hard. It's not, it's not natural.
1: But on that point, it seems that some of, obviously what's getting some of the, the national headlines, the attention that's prompting some of the potential legislation it has to do with the heckler's veto and shouting down certain speakers and such. But some of that seems to be intentionally pushing the limits, uh, pushing the limits to own the lib, so to speak. What do you think about that? Is, it, is there some value to uh, in the name of free speech to really push the limits so that we kind of have test cases or should our goal be more let's promote civility while we're. Also promoting First Amendment rights by this litigation.
2: In terms of, I mean, so the people who want to own the libs, um, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of what they want to say, but it's like that paraphrase thing that Voltaire said um, or was alleged to have said. I, I disagree with your, what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. I mean, let's not forget that often, a lot of times, unpopular speech, marginalized speech is that which needs protecting the most. I mean, New York Times v. Sullivan. That was brought because a bunch of people who were um, upholding Jim Crow in the South didn't want their names in the New York Times. Martin Luther King was arrested and wrote letters from Birmingham Jail because he had broken a gag order. And so, unpopular speech, it may be controversial, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't say it. I, I do. I, I think we should try to personally promote the virtues of of civility. But you know, I, that doesn't mean that. I, I want odious speech shut down. I mean, actually quite the opposite. I think if somebody is saying something odious, I kind of want to know who it is. If if I have a racist who I go to school with, I want to know who they are. So I don't hang out with them. I don't want them to be secretly racist. So I, I don't know. I th- I think there's just, there's value in more speech as opposed to trying to cover it all up and kind of be waspy and, and pretend that everything's fine.
0: This is a common question that I, I used to ask of all the guests. Uh, and then I, I have fallen off a little bit, but, but, uh, but now I'm bringing it back. What would be your favorite college-themed movie?
2: My favorite college-themed movie.
0: Yes, I was going to go with like a litigation movie. I, I typically ask for some sort of pop culture thing that's related to the policy area that we're talking about. If you want to do a free a free speech-themed movie, um, fine too. But I I don't know. Uh,
2: what was the one with Wilk? Um with Will Ferrell, or they go old school. Old school. I like old school.
0: Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I also like Billy Madison, but I think that's more K to twelve.
0: That's probably true. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I I will say that it is a bit of a curveball in that college theme movies tend not to be a very high quality.
2: <laughs> like Animal Animal House. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Or PCU. That one was all right. All oh right. yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. For joining us today. If people want to find out more about Speech First, how do they do that? Sure. Our, web,
2: our website is speechfirst.org. And so yeah, people can learn about our different cases. Aside from the University of Texas case, we also have one going against the University of Michigan that is currently before the Sixth Circuit. So um, stay tuned there. And then hopefully we'll have another one or two cases filed before um, the summer this year.